The call of the Great Commission demands that believers both teach and obey the commandments of Christ. As we work to conform our minds to the Bible, it requires personal effort to change the way we see the world and how we love others. In this lesson, we continue to explore the challenge of laying aside the things of the world and embracing the responsibility to walk in love. All this and more as we continue our year of the family. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to continue our series, our walk through Ephesians. Paul's been talking about some pretty important things about um, laying aside the old man and embracing the new man, laying aside our old nature and embracing our responsibility to be uh, children of God. And what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 5 in Ephesians. And one of the things that is... uh, it's important for us is, is to remember the impact of laying down our priorities for the sake of, of the gospel and pursuing godliness. Um, a lot of times we have this mindset that we have to, so God saves us by grace through faith. He loves us. Um, but then we spend the rest of our lives trying to stay in his good graces. We think that we have to prove ourselves in order for him to love us. And uh, we get caught up in the the religious rat race of trying to be perfect. And then we compare ourselves to other people and we judge other people. And what it does is it, it undermines the foundational principle that, that there is no other time in our lives when God will love us any less than He already does. So Romans tells us that, what, that um, sorry, Ephesians tells us that before, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the idea is that God loves you just as much today as he did the day that he saved you. There's no difference. And um, as we walk and we, we apply ourselves to put on the new man, what happens is that we begin to take on his character. We begin to take on his likeness. And that affects our relationships. It affects, it affects the people around us. It affects ourselves. That, uh, that outward imitation creates an inward uh, uh, conformity to his, to his likeness and his nature, his character. And um, the byproduct of that is not we're not supposed to live perfect or be perfect, um, but we are called to make a conscious decision to live the way that He has called us to live. He, he uh, derives great pleasure from that. And uh, so we're going to look at that this morning. Um, so last time we looked at how seriously God takes division in the last little bit of chapter 4. And um, what we're going to look at this morning is that is how God uh, takes that... Um, that process of taking on the new man, and he creates in us the capacity to love people biblically. Okay, so let's read these first several verses, and then we're going we're gonna to take them apart. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, the apostle says this. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because these things... for Oh, sorry, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, beginning at the first first couple of verses, we're going to look at being conformed for loving others and pleasing God. 
So he begins by saying that we need to be imitators of God. Um, this is uh, this word comes from a uh, a Greek word. It's translated that from from a meaning that means to share someone's uh, nature or share someone's shadow. Uh, think of it as uh, there are certain things that you've inherited from your parents, right? Certain mannerisms, certain things that you do. You didn't set out to learn them, but they're just things that you do. I remember one time we were at dinner with my my parents and the rest of my family at Olive Garden, and my dad was sitting at the head of the table. I was sitting at the foot of the table, and we were when we were done eating, both of us pushed our chairs back from the table, and we leaned on. I put my left elbow on my left leg, and I leaned forward, enjoying the aftermath of the meal, only to look across the table and see my dad was in the exact same pose. <coughs> You probably have noticed this with each other. I don't know if you have made the mistake of stepping on a landmine of saying you're acting just like your mom or just like your dad, right? You have these mannerisms. Oh my goodness, it drives me crazy. There are things that we picked up by osmosis from our parents. In the same way, there are things that we pick up from God by being in proximity to Him. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. That when the, when the culture is hostile against us, when we, are, when we bump up against sinfulness... We produce things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are our godly response to a sinful situation. So as we conform, as we are in proximity to God, we become imitators of Him. This is also important for us to think about when it comes to the process of discipleship. Paul tells the churches, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm not perfect, but imitate me. Chase me while I'm chasing Jesus and see how my faith has a very real impact on my life. We've got to remember, first and foremost, that yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but we have to make a decision on how we're going to live. An absent-minded perspective about life or a dismissal about the responsibility to, to actively put on the new man comes with consequences. The words that he's using here are in the imp imperative mood. What that means is that, is that it's an absolute command. Paul is not making a suggestion that we become imitators of God. He's saying this is absolutely fundamentally necess uh, necessary for you to live and to, and to not just to survive, but to know God. Other uses of this command in Scripture point to the instruction that we have been transformed into God's likeness at conversion, and we've got to continue to live according to His character. This word means to follow. It implies following a teacher so closely that their mannerisms and character become second nature. Think about what the psalmist said in Psalm 91. He says, One who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will lodge in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There's an inherent protection that comes from being in proximity to God and being an imitator of Him. And that confidence that comes from that protection leads to godliness. And under the security of the Father in heaven, we're free to live, just like Paul says, as beloved children. The idea is that a, a good child is going to want to imitate their parents. They're going to want to imitate their, their mentor, their disciple maker. But what also protects us from without also transforms us from within. So by proximity, a child of God is going to be able to, just like Paul says, to walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. So here's a key truth for us. It is impossible for someone to be an imitator of God, to live in proximity to God, and not be changed. That is impossible. If you look around at your life and you realize that you are the same today as you were 
yesterday or five years ago or ten years ago, something is wrong. You are not abiding. You are not, you are not staying close to the Father. Being close to God implies that we're going to change. Think about what Peter says in his second letter to the churches. He says that we become partakers of God's divine nature. And in the process of taking on His nature, we've got to remember that we have, a, we have to make the continual decision to develop ourselves through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, implies that we will change. We will change. That comes with an, intention, an intentionality. We cannot say, okay, well, yep, you know, I'm just going to do my life, I'm going to do my thing, and forget about all my responsibility to conform my life to God's Word. In, in, in his letter to the Romans, Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind implies a conscious effort to be different. So for us, whenever we are thinking about how we are leading our families or creating our lives together, we are, we are cultivating a culture in our families. We are cultivating a culture within our relationship. And we've got to make conscious decisions about how we are going to lead, uh, lead and to live uh, in proximity to God. This also leads us to another interesting thing, an important lesson, that God is not content to change us in spirit, only to leave us unchanged in mind and body. We have a responsibility to take care of ourselves. We cannot neglect ourselves and then think that we are being oppressed because of our own negligence. We've made a, we've made a decision to live that way. Paul's point here is, again, that we must take, make the conscious decision to take off the default settings of our flesh and work towards our own sanctification. See, God's pri God primarily pushes us through this process through the application of trials. James talks about this, that the trying of our faith works patience and eventually will make us perfect. God uses trials to shake us out of this mindset that we can just kind of coast through our life. There's a couple things that I want you to think about here as we become imitators of God. The first is that we've got a choice whether or not that we will conform to the image of Christ. Is it possible for someone who claims to be a believer to be stagnant and to stop growing? Yes. In fact, think about what Paul, he, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians and he chides them about their lack of progress. He says, you have made the conscious decision to remain ignorant and childish in your faith. You have put off the responsibility of putting on the new man. You have not been a steward. You have been lazy. He says, I want to feed you meat, but we're still on milk. Man, that's a frustration. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God's a good father who will discipline his children if they refuse to obey him. He says that in Hebrews chapter 12. We need to think twice before we dismiss the command to be imitators of God. We have to fight with every part of our being against this idea that, okay, now I'm saved, I'm good, I don't have to do anything else. We don't, we don't do certain things or we don't do certain things because we need to prove that we love God or that we need to stay in His good graces. We do these things because we want to please our Father. Because we know that it's good for us. And the, and the more godly we become, the more we enjoy doing godly things. The more we dis, dislike being in sinful things. But here's the second thing here. Is that all discipline comes as a trial, but not all trials come as discipline. There's an important distinction here. There are some people who wrongly think that just because their life is hard that they are right with God. That, oh, well, yes, this is oppression. But the purpose of trials is for development and growth. God does not give us hard things just to make us suffer, just to make us think that, that we are, that just to see our limitations. 
the point of trials is for our perfection. And so when we experience trials, it is important for us to remember that this is happening on purpose for a purpose. Lord, why is there tension within my marriage? Well, something is, something is not right. Why is there tension with my relationship with this person? Something is not right. Why is there tension within my own heart? Because something is not right. God sends trials to draw the sinfulness and the, and the selfishness out of us. So if we are in the middle of a trial, God doesn't just do this because He wants to, to, to make us suffer, to make us hard. He's doing this because He wants us to become more like Him. Trials produce Christ-likeness to become imitators of God. Romans tells us that if we partake in the same suffering as Christ, that we become co-heirs with Him. That's a very important uh, principle for us to understand. And if we reject the responsibility to learn and grow, we should not be surprised to find ourselves stuck in the same place and to be worn out. I know it's happened with us several times in our lives where we have, primarily this has been for me in financial things, where I am getting an extra job or trying to do, do side work to try to earn a little bit of extra money to pay down a bill, only to find that more things come up and that extra money ends up just flying away. I remember uh, one, of the, one of the big decisions that I made on my own, foolishly, was to try to go into house flipping by myself. Without talking to my wife, without getting godly counsel, I thought I was going to be the guy. And overnight, it seems, we went from no debt and having our cars paid for to a second mortgage and $45,000 in credit card debt. And slowly over time, we earned enough money to pay that back. But towards the end, I thought, okay, God, thanks for taking this. I'll take it from here. Only to find out that all that side money just disappeared. And then finally the Lord came to me and He said, Are you sure? Are you sure that you've got this? And I had to submit myself to His, to his leading. We tend to think that, that, okay, God, thanks for saving me. I'm good from here on out. But no, he's not content to leave us there. Trials happen on purpose for our development. But notice this. It also goes that we should please God. Um, he, says, he says that our decision to love others through conforming to him is an offering and a sacrifice to God, which is a fragrant aroma. In the Old Testament, there are two things that they would do that were symbols of our relationship with God. The first was that they would take spices and they would put them in, um, in a device and they would burn incense in the temple. This was signifying the prayers of the people. They do this in some Christian traditions even today. The Catholics do this. They put, they put, uh, they put spices in a laver and they, they go through the church and it fills the church with all kinds of smells and beautiful smoke. Another thing that, they, that, that the Old Testament describes is whenever they would sacrifice an animal to the Lord, they would place it on the altar, a burning altar, and then the, the, the smell of that burning animal would be a pleasant aroma to God. God enjoys it when His children live how they were designed to live. And He created us to be His image bearers in creation, think about Genesis chapters one and two. He says, "He, he says, I need. To, I'm going to make a man after my own image." And there's nothing more pleasing than for us to fulfill that role. So think about this: our development, our our application of becoming imitators of our, of Christ, is a pleasing act of worship to our Father. How often? I'm guilty of this. So often of saying, the Lord convicts me of something in my life, and I decide, man, you know, I really shouldn't be doing that. I really shouldn't be involved in that. And I roll my, I roll my eyes, and i like, oh, this is so horrible. I'm missing out on this thing. 
when God's word says that this is an act of worship, that when God says, hey, this part of your life, we need to cut this out because this is bad for you. Instead of, instead of rolling our eyes and shrugging our shoulders and stomping our feet and saying, God, I can't believe you're being so unfair. We should say, yes, Lord, please take that too. Take that too. My, the process of me becoming more like Christ, of being imitators of God, of laying down my whole self, is an act of worship. It is something that is, that is uh, sweet to the Lord. It means that, that um, the way that we love other people is the way that we also experience God's goodness. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Obedience creates the capacity to love other people. And he noticed he says in the same way that Jesus gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice. We should also give ourselves to him in the same way. It reminds me of the lesson from last week, the sermon from last week, that Bob Yandian brought, that Jesus' response, his, his only response to his crucifixion was a prayer. His only response was, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, in the garden, it, say, it says that, Scripture tells us that Jesus was stressed in the garden and that he was sweating drops of blood. That his, the capillaries in his face had literally ruptured and so his, his sweat ducts were, were sweating blood. But you know, from that point forward, there's no mention of his stress. Once he says, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus is fully committed. I don't think that he regretted any second going to the cross because he knew what, what the product would be. We need, to, we need to have the same mindset. As we become imitators of God, we need to remember that this is worship. This is pleasing to God. And the more that we please God, the more we want to please Him. And we should do this because Jesus is our model. So another key truth for us here is that many Christians lack the ability to love others because they have neglected the fundamental responsibility of offering themselves completely to God as an offering. Obedience is not an obligation, but an act of worship that pleases God. We don't obey God because we're trying to avoid punishment. We, we obey Him because it's pleasing to Him. How many of you would do, do nice things for your spouse, would serve your spouse? Do you do that because you're afraid they're going to punish you? Or do you do that because you love them? What is, what is God's Word like in our relationship to Him like? A marriage between a man and a woman, that Jesus sacrificed himself for his church, for his bride, and the bride submits and serves him in the same, in the same way. You see, when we submit to God, when we, we become imitators of God, we become his beloved children, and we walk in love, just like Christ walked in love and loved us, and he gave himself up for us, because it's an act of worship. Jesus was able to live his everyday life from birth to the cross as an act of worship. You may not think that little things, the macaroni and cheese of your life, the regular everyday stuff, is an act of worship, but it is. Many of you have heard the story. Many, many couple years ago, Lindsay was gone to gone for a morning, and I was at home with the girls by myself. And I I walk into the kitchen, all frazzled because there's dishes everywhere, there's laundry everywhere, the house is a mess. I'm sitting there scrubbing dishes, pissed off of the world, and the Holy Spirit's like, "Hey, buddy, what you doing?" Doing dishes. Why are you doing dishes? Because they weren't done last night. Yep, that's why. Because they weren't done. It's like, yeah, you know the dishes that you're washing? You know that laundry on the bed that hasn't been made in a long time? 
You know that mess in the living room? You know those are things that the enemy picks up and throws at your wife like a weapon? You're not doing dishes. You're taking arrows off the table and you're breaking them so that the enemy can't attack your wife. When we serve each other, we worship. That is why we do things, not because we want to get lucky that night, not because we want to to avoid punishment. We serve each other because we love each other. In the same way that we serve the Lord and we obey the Lord because we love the Lord. It's pleasing to Him for us to be able to do these things. But in the process of that, look at this in verses 3 and 4, that, that we're conformed to holiness. He goes on to say, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not, uh, sorry, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. A couple of things here. These items are important for us to understand. First, Paul outlines several areas that the people of God are susceptible to slander, things that people could say about us that would undermine the testimony of our witness. He says sexual immorality is something that we should avoid. This comes from the Greek word pornonia. It's where we get our word pornography. Um, in this context, it means illicit sexual intercourse. This includes adultery, that's sex that violates the covenant of marriage, uh, fornication or, or sex outside of marriage uh, by unmarried people, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, sex with people who have not been divorced for the biblical exception of, of adultery. He says sexual immorality, this covers the whole gamut, everything. He says any impurity, that means all impurity, is from the Greek which means a, in a moral sense, the impurity of lustful, luxurious, prolif- profligate living. What that means is reckless living, extravagant living, or wasteful living. It implies a lifestyle driven by pleasure at any cost. The word that, defi- that, that wraps all this up is hedonism. hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure at every turn. The challenge for us is not a, a neglect of pleasure. It's not, a, it's, it's not that God wants us to avoid enjoying life. It's that the enemy loves to take God-given good things and make them into idols. He's saying all of these things are, are, will destroy you. He says greed is another example. In this sense, it literally means the desire to have more. It's always used in a negative sense in everywhere in Scripture. And it's synonymous with covetousness. Greed implies I don't have enough. Why don't I have enough? Because I'm always comparing myself to other people. They have they have the house, they have the car, they have, they have the high-paying jobs, they have all these things that I don't have. What, what am I missing? God, God, clearly you haven't given me what I deserve. That is greed. That is an ungodly and sinful way to look at life. The implication of these first attributes is that they were common accusations against early believers. Many of these issues have, were tied to pagan worship. So, so think about this that before he calls us to be imitators of God, the very first record that we have of God taking um, sex outside of the bonds of marriage seriously is in in Genesis chapter 6. And the accusation, this is when God looks at the world and he regrets. He is mourned over the idea of creating man. What was happening is it says that prominent men, powerful men, men of stature, were were seeing uh, seeing the daughters of Eve And they began to collect them like toys, like trinkets, for sexual purposes. 
is the very first record of human trafficking that we see is in Genesis chapter 6. And it leads God, it turns his stomach to the point to where he decides he's going to send a global flood to kill every single man, woman, and child. This is how seriously God takes the, the, the abuse and the, um, the bastardization of sexual practices. This is about uh, idolatry. He also talks about how believers should be known, instead of these things, they should be known for their godly speech, their character. He says that filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting have no place in the Christian culture because they're not fitting. They don't fit. Filthiness comes from the Greek word which means baseness or shame or disgrace. It implies anything that's contrary to purity. Our language should not contain crude jokes or references to make light of evil things. This is a prevalent issue for many believers because... We enjoy being crude for the sake of building our ego or fitting in. Have you ever been around those people that you watch your, you watch your language because you know there's just something about their presence that's convicting? Like, man, I don't want to make that. I, don't, I, I like that joke that's kind of funny. I'll tell that to my best buddies, but I'm not going to say it to this person because that's a little, little racy, a little dirty. It's not fitting for me. That's the Holy Spirit telling you that you shouldn't be talking about such things. Foolish talk. Foolish talk comes from the Greek word moros. It's where we get our word moron. The idea of foolish talk is um, implies a tongue that is um, just kind of casual about the things that you say. So think about this. Uh, James, in chapter 3, talks about how uh, the tongue is a fire that can kindle a, a great forest fire. It's a little bitty thing that can create this giant raging inferno. Foolish talking, what he's, what, he, what he's speaking about there is he's, he, he's painting the picture of a fire in the woods without a fire ring. We put a perimeter around a, a campfire so that it doesn't wander and burn the rest of the forest down, right? He's talking about building a fire in the middle of a forest with no fire ring. Foolish talking is talking that's just, you know, filling the air. How many times? This, I'm, this is one of my biggest struggles, I'll be honest with you. That my mouth just runs and I say stupid things because I just want to fill the empty space. Foolish talking. So what does the enemy do? Oh, you should say that thing. You should make that jab about that person. You should be sarcastic. Sarcasm, actually, I would fit sarcasm in this, in this vein of thought. We should be speakers of truth. Remember, Proverbs tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love to use it will eat its fruit. The idea is that every word that we say will matter. It'll have an eternal consequence. It's like the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But in reality, scripturally, scripturally, we should read that as sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will haunt me for the rest of my life. How many of us have heard someone say to us, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a grandparent or a loved one, someone who looked up to, who said something to us in a moment of wickedness, and we carry it for the rest of our life. We bear grudges. Last week we talked about the idea of, of carrying on and holding on to bitterness, how it affects us and it poisons us from the inside out. He goes on to say that we should avoid coarse jesting. This comes from a combination of words. It implies quick-witted comebacks that degrade conversation and desensitize believers to sinfulness. These end up being running jokes and seem funny in the moment, but bend us towards making light of the consequences of sin. Man, this, I'll, t I'll be honest with you, 
I've been thinking about this for several weeks, and it just, this lesson just hit me right in the mouth. You know, we have these things that we say that are funny, that are culturally relevant. Think about the implication, okay? One of my favorites is the joke from The Office. That's what she said. I think it's hilarious. Okay, but the Lord's really been doing some work on my heart in this, right? So, what's the implication of making light of these things? Okay, so we know that that sex within a marriage is an important thing. It is, it is one of the, the strategies that God has put in place to bond a man and a woman together, right? It says in Scripture that the marriage, the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. That this is a sacred place between me and my wife, right? And when we make light of sexual things, what happens is we make light of that covenant. We make light of that seriousness. And we undermine its credibility. So let's walk down this slippery slope. We don't see our relationship with each other sexually as important or worth protecting. And so we're loose with our language. And then that produces a casual mindset towards sexual things. Then all of a sudden, you know what, things aren't as... We don't see things as biblically as they as we should, and so we begin to make allowances. Oh, well, you know, it's fine if two people that are not married want to live together because, you know, they love each other. They're in a committed relationship. They haven't made a covenant before God, but, you know, that's okay. You know, it, it's okay if, you know, a, a wife leaves her husband to marry another man because, you know, she deserves to be loved because he was a jerk. That's all right. Well, you know what, it, it's okay if, you know, Two people of the same sex love each other in a committed relationship because, you know, love is love, right? You know, it's okay. It's okay if an older man in his 60s falls in love with a 10-year-old girl and they want to get married because, you know, love is love, right? It's okay for a man to own a woman or a woman to own a man because, you know, everything's allowable. You see how our mind gradually degrades away from the truth. We live in a generation now that is confused about this on purpose. We have to start at the beginning. We've got to protect ourselves from this type of a mindset. That yes, these things are, they are witty and they are funny because they, 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 just, they just fit naturally into our lives. But think about the implications of allowing this stuff to marinate us, to take on the dismissal of the seriousness of these things. He says that these things are not fitting because they're not consistent with the nature of a holy God. Instead, a believer should be focused on cultivating an attitude of thankfulness for, that, for, for, um, for the way that they have to live, that they don't have to live that way anymore. In other words, our reputation with others should be more about our transformation and giving thanks and than being content with living in sin. So this leads to a question. Have you cultivated within your life and in the life of your family an attitude of thankfulness? Are you thankful that you no longer have to live in sin? Are you thankful that you have the opportunity to live and be an imitator of God? Are you thankful that you have a spouse who loves and chases Jesus? Are you thankful that you are part of a body of believers that will compel you and push you towards godliness? 
Are you thankful for the trials in your life because God's drawing out that sinfulness? Man, think about the recipe that he gives us in Philippians, how to deal with anxiety. He says, he says don't be anxious about anything. First, he says to rejoice. Rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let me repeat myself. Did I stutter? Be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Cultivating an attitude of thankfulness to remember that God loves us and He wants us to be like Him. This leads to a, a, a conformity to know the truth. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, For this you know with certainty, that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, For this you know certainly. In other words, the Holy Spirit has written this truth on your hearts. You know this to be true, which is why the inside of your gut feels really yucky right now. He says, you know this to be true. A child of God understands that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible for a person to be a Christian and practice these things without conviction. This doesn't mean that we are going to do this perfectly, but it does mean that we will, we, we will be compelled to godliness when we do them. Hebrews tells us that, the, that the, the presence of conviction is confirmation that God loves us, that we belong to Him. These are the lifestyles that Paul warned against in verse 3 about sexual immorality and purity and greed. He says, you know this. In other words, there's no gray area. People who practice unbridled sexuality, impurity, greed, or idolatry don't in any way belong to Christ. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God's grace is free, but it is not cheap. People ask the question, well, what about that season of life when, you know, I, I, I got away from my roots and I, I started chasing the world and, you know, what about that? Some of you have been through this season of your life. I know I have. Where I have, I have done some of the things that the world says are fun. I played around and I've realized, you know what, at the end of it, that emptiness that I feel, that's God saying, are we done? Are we done? Because we've got other stuff, other stuff to do. Next week, we're going to look at how Paul says these are unfruitful works of, of unrighteousness. They're unfruitful. These things are absolute. Scripture tells us that a believer cannot live in, a, in sin without conviction. One of the things that we, that we talked about last week was this idea of quenching the Spirit. You know, if we live in defiance to the Holy Spirit for long enough, that small whisper of the Holy Spirit be can become extremely hard to hear. And what God does is He turns up the noise and the difficulty of our trials so that we will finally shut off enough to where we can hear His whisper. A key truth here is that those who are able to practice sinfulness without conviction are not really God's children. They may call themselves Christians because of their weekend attendance at church or their occasional Bible reading, but the absence of godliness in their life proves the exact opposite. Now, Paul goes on to talk about deception. Look at verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with, with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What he's doing is he's reconciling paganism with Christianity. Now, at this time in history, it's not as popular as it is today, or as, it, as it's not popular today as it was back then. 
but was the idea of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a, was a philosophy that basically meant that God saves you spiritually, but everything else is, is discardable. It's disposable. Okay, So God saves my soul. He saves my spirit. So this is all about me being with him for eternity in heaven. But when it comes to the other parts of my life, I'm saved. Once saved, always saved, to borrow, borrow some language here. And, but the rest of my life doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. And what the Gnostics taught was that your body was disconnected from your eternal identity. But Scripture tells us that we're made in God's image, so we're triune beings, right? So we have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. So sin corrupts us. The wages of sin is death. It corrupts us in all three parts of our nature. Our spirit is our eternal identity, our eternal connection with God, the capacity for a relationship with God. Animals don't have spirits. Will there be dogs in heaven? I think so. Our dog, probably not. Sorry. Our, our eternal capacity for relationship with God, our spirit. Our body, sin corrupts our body. We physically die. That's the most obvious example of how sin corrupts us. Sin also changes our biochemistry. If you look at, a, if an, look at an MRI scan between a pornography addict and a cocaine addict, they are exactly the same. The same dopamine receptors fire, the same, same adrenaline receptors fire, everything is the same. Sin corrupts our body, our biochemistry. You marinate in a lifestyle long enough and it will change you physically. This is why addiction is a thing. This is why people are born with mental conditions that predispose them towards behaviors. Sin also corrupts our soul. Our mind, our, 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 mind, our will, and our emotions. The ability to make decisions. To set priorities. And how we feel about the decisions that we've made and the priorities that we've set. One writer described the human condition like a computer, that a computer requires hardware, software, and an energy source. It's a really crude example, but think about this. It makes sense. Hardware is our physical body. Software is our soul, our capacity to make decisions and to feel. And then our spirit is our energy source, our connection to, the, to, to, to God. In the Garden of Eden, when God made Adam and Eve, he breathed into them life, pneuma, the exact same word that's used for wind or air, the breath of life that God has animated us. We are corrupted in all three parts of our nature. What the, what the Gnostics were teaching was that a person can disregard these laws and they can just live free spiritually, but sin won't affect them in other places. But Paul tells us in, in, in his book to the Galatians that the body is at war with the spirit and the spirit is at war with the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. And so he says, live by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The Gnostics were teaching an incomplete regeneration of a person, but Paul was consistently fighting against these, this mindset that kept one foot in godliness while ignoring the call for holiness. What he's saying is, don't let anyone deceive you. Galatians chapter 6, he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. If he sows into the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows into the spirit, he will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due time we will bear fruit if we do not lose heart. We have a conscious responsibility to improve and to grow. He was adamant about purity because the consequences of ignoring it would lead to receiving the wrath of God, verse, chapter, verse 6, which comes upon the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience can also be translated as those who are obstinate in their opposition to the divine will. In other words, to ignore this instruction is to actively work with God's enemies to undermine and oppose His will. So for us, when we, when, when we were sitting in the car today, when you, were, when you were spending time together this afternoon, I want to ask you this question. Here's your question for the car. 
What are the areas in your life, in your family culture, that you have not conformed to godliness? What are the areas in your life? We, we're having a debate right now whether or not we should even have a subscription to Disney+. Plus. Should we be supporting a company that's actively trying to reprogram our kids and desensitize them to sexual things? Should we be giving them our money? Are we going to miss out on the next season of Mandalorian? Yes. I'm kind of sad about that. But are, these are practical things in our life. Are we, are we cultivating conformity to godliness? And the second question is, what is our first step in reversing it? What are the things that we have built into our family that we need to reevaluate? Are we living according to the Spirit? Are we consciously making the decision to, to, to live godly in our generation? Or are we simply dismissing the responsibility to develop in the first place? The lesson for me today in this, in this lesson from this passage of Scripture is that being an imitator of God requires conscious action. It is not just about me coasting for the rest of my life. I must architect my life according to God's Word. That means that every decision that we make as a couple, every decision that I make individually, has an impact. Several years ago, the Lord taught me a lesson. And it has carried me even to this day. It says something very simple. Be disciplined, or you will be disciplined. Be disciplined, or you will be disciplined. Don't think for one second that you can avoid the consequences of what God's words say. As you guys are, are putting your lives together, as you're thinking about making decisions for how your family is going to operate and going to function, how your, how your relationship is going to move forward, these are discussions that you must have. And if you neglect them, you are just biding time and making things more difficult for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.
The call of the Great Commission demands that believers both teach and obey the commandments of Christ. As we work to conform our minds to the Bible, it requires personal effort to change the way we see the world and how we love others. In this lesson, we continue to explore the challenge of laying aside the things of the world and embracing the responsibility to walk in love. All this and more as we continue our year of the family. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast.